Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, this is Angela Kokod in for Roy Green. On today's podcast, we get a look at the polls on the final day before the election. As well, we'll find out about a partnership between the universities that will see Canada's first full-service end-to-end biomanufacturing of vaccines. We also dispel fears around pregnancy and the COVID vaccine. That and more all coming up on the Roy Green Show podcast. The day before Election Day. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff. We have an election tomorrow, so we are going to cram as much as we can into the next three hours. In this half hour, we, uh, just in moments' time, are going to catch up with Daryl Bricker, Ipsos Public Affairs. We have been talking with Daryl and Sean Simpson throughout this campaign, just seeing how close those polls are. You know, just because you win the most seats doesn't necessarily mean you're going to form government. We'll talk to a constitutional expert. First up, though, I want to bring in Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on, Angela. This has been, right from the beginning, it seems, a a close race. Did we at any time see a wider break or margin between, well, the two liberals and the conservatives? Right at the very start, but uh, sort of like the, uh, the, uh, the intro that you had where you had the rocket going off with the countdown, the prime minister uh, thought he was going to be a rocket launching off from the from the pad, but he pressed the button and nothing happened. Uh, so by the time we hit the second week, uh, the two parties were basically tied, and they've bumped along in a tie uh, right from the very, almost right from the very beginning. Can you pinpoint why it's been so close? I mean, I know that might be a tough one, but why has it been so close? Well, it's been really close because uh, Canadians really did not want to have this election, um, and. That that's really dogged the entire campaign. In fact, the percentage of uh, people that we've interviewed that have said that they don't want an election started off at about 56% in the very first week of the campaign. It's now up to almost 70. So it's, the, the problem's actually become worse. And the difficulty is that people don't aren't really opposed to the government's performance during the pandemic. And it's not like Aaron O'Toole has offered them any you know fantastic alternative as far as they're concerned. So they're really frustrated by the fact that the prime minister called this election campaign, but really haven't found another option. But we may end up in a situation in which potentially, um, you know, the, the liberals could lose seats and form a, a, a weaker minority government, or they might even uh, lose the plurality to the conservatives. So with it so tight, then, I mean, turnout is going to be that much more important, isn't it? Well, it's really the only thing right now, Angela. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're past the persuasion part of the campaign and we're on to the activation part, which is uh, you're not trying to tell people that they shouldn't vote for this party and they should vote for yours. You're basically saying to the people who are already convinced that they should be voting for you that it, they really need to show up. So that's what you'll see all, all of the major parties trying to do over the space of the next uh, 24 hours. All right, we've got the frustration of voters, and then on top of that, it's a pandemic. So even the way we're going to be voting or maybe have voted in the advanced polls will be so different, nothing we've ever seen before. Uh, well, it is literally nothing that we've seen before. So, you know, whenever I'm looking at the polling data, I'm wondering what is it that we're missing uh, because we can't treat it as though uh, we're just going through the same old, same old. Uh, so uh, tomorrow, or uh, we don't know who is actually going to show up. 
So we've had elections over the space of the last uh, the last three elections in which the you know the turnout has ranged from 69 to 61. Well, if it's 61, Stephen Harper wins a majority government. If it's 69, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau wins a majority government in those two elections, 2011 and 2015. So what are we going to get this time? Wow. We'll have to wait and see. Daryl, thanks so much for the update. Thanks, Angela. All right. As much as I don't like to believe in polls, you have to admit that all the various polling companies have been getting pretty similar results throughout the whole campaign. No one party is clearly in the lead. What will things look like after Election Day? Of course, no one knows. But if it's as tight as the polls indicate, we could be headed back to a minority government. What does that look like? Will we have backroom deals? Joining me is Emmett McFarlane, professor of political science, specializing in constitutional law, governance, public policy at the University of Waterloo. Professor McFarlane, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This must just be your Christmas time for anyone who's watching politics. How have you felt as we've been going along the campaign and watching the polls come out pretty much in the last little while, neck and neck? What are your thoughts? It's certainly been interesting, but it's hard to pin the tight race on any particular factor. There there seems to be a segment of society um, that is unappreciative of the timing of the election, there are other people who are passionately uh, opposed to the current government, others um, really worried about alternatives. Um, but I'm not sure whether the tight race is indicative of any one factor. Hey, this is an election. I guess that's what everyone has so many different opinions. But if the polls ring true and it is so close that we have a minority government, I think a lot of people are saying, how does this work? Isn't it a case of whichever party wins the most seat gets to form government? It isn't that simple, is it, Emmett? No, it's not. And I think there's a few misconceptions around this because I think in practice at the federal level, certainly the party that wins the most seats tends to form government, but that's not the actual rule. What's important to understand is when parliament was dissolved for the election, all of our members of parliament ceased to be MPs, but the government, the prime minister and the cabinet continued to be the government, continued to be the prime minister and the cabinet. And so the, the Liberals and Justin Trudeau will have the first opportunity to decide whether they want to test confidence of the House of Commons. Um, and so they ultimately get the first crack at it, so to speak, if they want to stay on as government. And that's true whether they come in first place in terms of seats or even third place in terms of seats. Well, that is crazy. I'm sure some of my listeners are saying, wait a second, uh, let's do the math here. Uh, 338 seats, uh, a majority is 170. So if that party, so if the party, the liberals come in with 170, then that's fine. They're they're the majority government. Is uh, There's no discussion after that? Yeah, no. I mean, in, in practice, certainly if a party secures a majority, it's not a question and, and they, they will govern. In a, in a tight race, though, um, what ultimately determines this is the principle of responsible government in our system. And that principle rests on the idea that any party that can obtain the support or the confidence of a majority of the members of the House of Commons gets to form government. Um, but that that's that confidence needs to be tested. So if the liberals were to um, 
even win the most seats, but not a majority. The opposition parties could very well decide to get together and defeat the government at the very first opportunity and then request that the governor general appoint perhaps someone like Aaron O'Toole to to try to form government and see if he can secure the confidence. And that's that's the democratic principle of our system. It's the majority of the members of the House who ultimately determine who forms government. So you're right. It's when we start getting into this minority area that we have to have all these questions uh, that are answered. So what I mentioned, backroom deals, this is what we would be seeing then. Let's say if uh, the scenario played out that you laid out there, that it would be up to, again, this is all hypothetical, but uh, Aaron O'Toole having to go to the NDP or the bloc to say, let's form a coalition and we will... Uh, then get the confidence of the House? Certainly, if, you know, the further away the first and second place parties are from each other, the less likely that is. But if it's close, uh, someone like Jagmeet Singh could certainly decide that he wants to play kingmaker and he may be willing to take the time to listen to both uh, Justin Trudeau and Aaron O'Toole about what they will do to secure his support. What platform promises will they make in effect um, to to secure to try to secure the the the, the support of the NDP, um, we we don't have a tradition in Canada of coalition governments, so we're very unlikely to see a formal coalition where more than one party decides to form government and have representation in cabinet. But we do have a tradition in Canada sometimes of accords, so agreements. Of, of the, the the smaller parties to support one of the larger parties for, say, a two-year or a two-and-a-half-year period in exchange for some policy concessions of some sort. And that's the sort of backroom dealing, so to speak, that might happen in a, in a close result. Well, and we saw that in 2019. I mean, we know the the liberals were having to go to the NDP in some cases for certain things to be passed. I mean, that that was the that's exactly what we saw in the last election, wasn't it? Yeah, in 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 any minority situation, you're likely to see that kind of day to day bargaining happen. An accord is a bit more formalized in that it's a pledge to support for a fixed period of time, right from the outset, in exchange for perhaps a major platform plank. In the case of the the NDP, that might mean major movement on something like pharmacare uh, or or dental dental care as part of the broader health system. Um, but it it is something that would be set out in advance um, in order to secure that support. Now I suspect if the Liberals do come in first place, even if it's very close, they might just try to govern, right? They might put all the pressure on Jagmeet Singh and say, look, we're going we're gonna to have a throne speech. We're going to table a budget. If you want to defeat us and result in a conservative government, go ahead. Um, that, that's the alternative to actually bargaining, right? Just call a bluff and see what happens. My guest today is Emmett McFarland. He is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo. And Professor McFarland, I think that's the frustration for a lot of Canadians, that a third place party could hold that kind of power over another party that won more seats. Yeah, I mean, I I understand where you're going with that. I think it, it gets a little complicated, right? In that if no party secures a majority uh, of seats, 
um, then it has to be some sort of consensus-based decision-making at the end of the day, whether that's a formalized agreement or, or just, you know, making that day-to-day struggle and seeing how you can cobble enough support to continue governing. Um, and so to, to Canadians who are frustrated with this, I mean, I would agree at the level of transparency. Everyone who votes tends to vote for a particular party and, and for that party platform. And in a minority situation, and certainly in a formal coalition situation, you end up with some sort of weird hybrid that no one voted for. No one is, no one is voting right now thinking that they were, there will be an agreement between the Conservatives and the NDP, even though that could theoretically happen. But you can only go based on that majoritarian principle. That's, that's democracy. We got close to a a formal coalition under Stephen Harper. So we've never had a a, a truly formal coalition in all the years of Canada. Um, Certainly not in the modern era. Okay. So remind us about Stephen Harper and how he faced it as a a leader in a minority government facing a possible coalition. Yeah. So in 2008, uh, the Conservatives were returned to their, their second minority parliament they introduced a, a budget uh, statement that was controversial and controversial enough such that the Liberals, the NDP, and with the support of the Bloc Québécois got together and pledged that they were going to defeat the government, that they were going to, to vote no confidence. That was ultimately resolved when uh, Prime Minister Harper at the time decided to prorogue Parliament and try to make a case to Canadians that this coalition was politically illegitimate, um, which is all well and good, right? Canadians uh, ultimately decided that that coalition idea was very unpopular. The Liberals during that election campaign had promised not to enter into a coalition, and they were kind of breaking their promise when they when they threatened to defeat the government. But at the same time, the Conservatives also argued that the because they had won the most seats, only they could govern, which constitutionally speaking was an inaccuracy. It, was, it, it simply wasn't true, and it was a misrepresentation of how the system works. Ultimately, politics determined whether that coalition was going to survive. The, the opposition parties in 2008 read the tea leaves and saw that that their proposal was manifestly unpopular and the the coalition basically collapsed. At the same time, the Conservatives backed away from a couple of their controversial proposals in that budget, including getting rid of the per-vote subsidy uh, for political parties. So you had this democratic reckoning. Both sides kind of climbed down a bit and, and sanity prevailed. But a coalition defeating a minority government from a constitutional perspective is a perfectly legitimate thing. Wow. And I I mean, I said no one knows what's going to happen after Election Day, but there's a chance that we really won't even know until a few days after Election Day, because if some of these races are so tight that they'll be then counting in the mail-in ballot. So this could be a long process, couldn't it? Yeah, the the pandemic situation certainly complicates things. We see we see what sounds like a pretty high proportion of mail-in ballots and elections Canada has indicated those won't be counted until the following day. Uh so 
yeah, we, we could have a lot of uncertainty for a few days. Not the norm in Canada, but we do see this in other democracies, and we shouldn't wring our hands too much about it. <laughs> oh, it'll be interesting to watch, and I'm sure you'll be watching it every minute there. Emma, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Emmett McFarland, Professor of Political Science, specializing in constitutional law, governance, and public policy at the University of Waterloo. It is going to be crazy. I mean, when we look at what, uh, it's about 27 million eligible Canadians to vote. Already over 5 million have voted in the advance polls. Another over 1 million asking for mail-in ballots. And as Emmett pointed out, those mail-in ballots, they don't start counting them until the next day. They have to ensure that everyone who ordered a mail-in ballot didn't show up on election day and vote twice. Crazy. So if it's going to be as close as the polls are indicating, I don't think we're going to find out late on Monday night. It might be a little after that, but we will see. As it is now, when Justin Trudeau called the election... 338 seats in the House of Commons, so you needed 170 for a majority. The Liberals had 155, the Conservative Party 119, Bloc Québécois 32, NDP 24, the Green 2, and a couple of independents in there. So uh, we'll see how those numbers change after the election. In the early stages of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern over Canada's lack of ability to develop its own COVID vaccines. While we are now seeing some facilities being built, there is still a great need. And that's why a recent partnership between the University of Alberta, the Ottawa Hospital, and BioCanRx to collaborate on manufacturing vaccines, gene therapies, cell therapies, and so much more is big news. I want to bring in Dr. Gregory Corbett. He is a professor of surgery at the University of Alberta, scientific director of ACTM. That's the Alberta Cell Therapy Manufacturing. Dr. Corbett, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. And, and it's it's a difficult process for the average listener to understand. But when we are talking about biomanufacturing, and as I mentioned, over the last year and a half, there has been this concern that we don't have enough facilities, opportunities to do this. How did we get ourselves in this position? I believe what happened was, is there were a few facilities that were able to do biomanufacturing but these facilities are extremely expensive to maintain and operate. So I think what happened is they lost government funding and then they basically were dissolved. So that left uh, biomanufacturing left to uh, in industrial companies. And most of those are located either in the U.S. or in, in Europe. Now, fortunately, we have been able to obtain COVID vaccines during this period, but it would be nice to have our own homegrown vaccines. What is, first of all, your, your group of the Alberta Cell Therapy Manufacturing? Describe that to my listeners. So the Alberta Cell Therapy Manufacturing Facility is what's called a good manufacturing facility. What that means is you, it's Health Canada, U.S. FDA approved and approved by the regulatory bodies in, in Europe. So, for example, uh, I'm a, a scientist who makes cells for different cell therapy in my research lab. If 
I want to take those cells and put them into patients to treat them with various diseases, I can't do that in my research lab. It has to be what's in a good manufacturing facility. So it's a regulated facility. It's basically, it's uh, it's what we call clean rooms, the air is filtered, so it's really clean, and it's got the infrastructure for documenting all the steps making, for example, uh, a vaccine or a cell product that's going to, let's say, for example, to treat patients with cancer. So the Alberta Cell Therapy Manufacturing Facility, uh, it was funded by the federal government and the Alberta government to a total of $26 million. And uh, we became operational in about uh, 2012. So you're able to, let's say, create the cells and have the clinical trials. Stop me when I'm going in the wrong direction. But in order for that to then, let's say, receive approval and eventually be developed, that's the bigger process of biomanufacturing. Am I correct in that then? It is. Well, so you need the facility to manufacture it. And along with that manufacturing, there there is a lot of regulatory paperwork that goes along with it. So you write this regulatory paperwork, it gets approved by Health Canada, and then you can go ahead and, and make, for example, your vaccine. Now I want to talk about the partnership because we've got two prominent universities in this country as well as BioCanRx. So tell me why this is such a significant partnership. The re- reason why it's significant is so the Ottawa Hospital, or also the same thing as BioCanRx, they have the ability, the technology to make various vaccines and other p- products. But what they are lacking is the capacity to do a process that is called fill finish. So you make the vaccine, which is a liquid, and it has to be put in those little vials that are used to inject people. So you put it in these vials and then you ship it to all the different places where people can get vaccinated. That's that's their limitation. They don't have the capacity to do it. So we have this ACTM here at the University of Alberta that has the infrastructure to do it. So the partnership is is that there we are going to get staff, which we already have in place, and we're getting them trained to do the fill finish. So Ottawa would be BioCanRx, would make the vaccine. It would be sent to the University of Alberta, and we do fill finish and put them in, into the vials. So this completes the whole process, whereas before they were lacking that last step. And so this is when we talk about this, the uh, end-to-end biomanufacturing solution? Yes. So it's difficult for one, one institute to do everything by themselves because you need the infrastructure. The infrastructure is extremely expensive. So you can't just say, well, I need, I need a room to put my vaccine into vials. I'll build it. But we already have this $26 million facility here at the University of Alberta. So why not create a partnership to use it? My guest today is Dr. Gregory Corbett. He is a professor of surgery at the University of Alberta. We focus so much on the COVID vaccine. Would we see COVID vaccines developed in this partnership? What are we going to see come out of this? I don't necessarily think that this partnership is necessarily COVID directly Mm. related. We started the discussion of having this partnership before COVID. 
So it's basically, and, and now because of COVID and the lack, lack of vaccine, that it could be potentially be used for that. Very interesting. Okay, that's COVID. Then tell me before COVID, the conversations you were having and saying, we can develop these different cell therapies, vaccines. Give me an idea of the, the work that will be done in this. So there, so there, there is uh, um, other diseases that need vaccines or, or or drugs, and the group in Ottawa has the potential to make. It. They have the technology, and we have the technology to to now develop the the, the capacity to put them in the vials. Uh, here here in in the University of Alberta, we were we have also made stem cells that are, can, can be used to treat patients with sepsis. So by having a partnership, you're always stronger together. And it's difficult to predict at this moment where this partnership will take us for treating what different diseases. But once we get the people trained here and have the partnership, then we've, we've got the flow through to allow different um, manu- biomanufacturing. Would, uh, let me see, pharmaceutical companies go to you? Would it be um, the government when it's looking for, I'm, I'm just throwing out flu vaccines or COVID vaccines, who would be your customer, so to speak? The customers would be, for example, it could be uh, industry. So it could be pharmaceutical companies. It could be local researchers at the University of Alberta. But I'd say most likely it will be be industry. Very exciting. I'm so glad you were able to explain it to us. And as I say, the whole idea of biomanufacturing, we don't realize just how complicated the process is. So I sure appreciate your time, Dr. Corbett. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much. Dr. Gregory Corbett is a professor of surgery at the University of Alberta and the scientific director of the Alberta Cell Therapy Manufacturing. Hopefully you can hang around. I'm going to be talking with Andre Picard from the Globe and Mail. This whole idea of when do we get out of this pandemic? Do we move to an endemic? And what's that going to look like? But first, in the early days of the COVID pandemic, there was lots of questions surrounding whether or not pregnant women should be vaccinated. Well, as we have moved along, we know the message is clear. Yes. In fact, it was just within the last week that Alberta's chief medical officer of health said that in August, six Alberta women, pregnant Alberta women, ended up in ICU. And when you compare that to the entire first year of the pandemic, that was seven So frightening indeed. I want to bring in Dr. Verena Kurich. She is a researcher and clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Cummings School of Medicine, University of Calgary. Dr. Kurich, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. How long has the uh, Cummings School of Medicine been tracking the number of pregnant women who end up getting COVID? So we have been starting since the beginning of the pandemic in March uh, 2020. It happened sort of rather organically as we were seeing COVID affecting our pregnant patients across the country. Um, We gathered informally um, and then formalized that group so that we were following both the Alberta um, incidence of COVID infection and pregnancy uh, alongside all of our colleagues with representation from every province and territory across the country. 
The reason that's important is we really wanted to make sure that what we were seeing more locally in our provinces was reflective of what was happening across the country, and that's certainly helped us develop clinical protocols and make decisions about care and management of pregnant patients who have been infected with COVID. And the reason I ask that is because we've had the vaccine, uh, I would say, since December, January. So you've been following this even prior to the vaccine. Just give me an idea what they were seeing in those early months. In the early months, um, back in March of 2020, sort of the first wave of the pandemic, Relative to what we're seeing now, our numbers were really low. We were seeing, you know, maybe five, 12 uh, new infections every two weeks um, across the province because we are provided uh, the information directly from communicable diseases about every new pregnant uh, infection in the province. And, you know, jump forward to wave four, wave three and four, we're seeing upwards to 150 new cases per week. Those are remarkable changes. I would also say that with the variants of concern, the acuity we're seeing, so women are getting sicker. Uh, We are seeing a rise in hospitalization, a rise in our ICU admissions. And that's really different, uh, particularly in this fourth wave with the Delta variant, when we compare that back to what we saw and the data we collected and recorded from waves one and two. And in waves one and two, and I'm losing track of time as well, but we didn't have access to the vaccine yet, did we? We didn't. No, you're absolutely right. The only people that would have been vaccinated were some healthcare workers sort of to the tail end of wave two because that was available in January and February, but that was a really small group of people. Um, Our team then worked really hard to advocate for pregnant women to be prioritized for vaccination in the province because by April of this year, so April 2021, when we were a year into the pandemic, we already had data that showed us that when pregnant women get COVID-19 infections, they're more likely to have severe disease, that they were more likely to end up hospitalized in the ICU, and we also we're seeing increased rates of preterm birth in the pregnant population. And therefore, we were able to, I think we were the second province to do it. Ontario was first, and then Alberta followed with prioritization for pregnant women uh, sometime in April 2020 to be able to receive the vaccine. And for me to say, yeah, that's great. Make sure they get the vaccine. But I've also had two children. And I I do remember way back then, you'd even be nervous about having an aspirin. And so what that that may have been the biggest obstacle, though, in those early days of making sure pregnant women were actually receiving the vaccine. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. You know, I think what we're really asking people to 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 do is a complete paradigm shift in our thinking in that, as you said, we've always thought, don't put things in your body when you're pregnant. So Mm -hmm. avoid medications, avoid unpasteurized uh, dairy products, um, do not consume alcohol. And, And what we're saying to people now is, no, we're flipping that on its head. Please get a vaccine because that's going to protect you. And it's also going to provide immunity and protection for your fetus and then your newborn infant. Um, 
I would say the other thing that compounded the uptake of the vaccine in pregnant individuals in uh, early days when the vaccine was available was that we didn't have a lot of data. And this is this speaks to a bigger problem in obstetrics that pregnant women or individuals are typically not included in clinical trials for new medications or interventions. And so the only data we had early on was from accidental pregnancies that happened with people enrolled in the original trials mm-hmm. with Pfizer and Moderna. And that, that was, those were small numbers, 30 or 40 people. But since then, what's changed that's allowing us to feel so much more comfortable recommending the vaccine for pregnant individuals is that we have registries, the biggest one being the registry in the U.S. uh, out of the CDC, uh, so the Center for Communicable Diseases, and they, they're, it's called V-SAFE, and there are close to 160,000 women that have registered in that registry, and they have all received the vaccine in pregnancy. Uh, so that gives us a lot of safety data now to really understand that there are no increased risks of miscarriage, no risks to abnormalities developing in the fetus, and no risks from the vaccine that are any different than uh, a non-pregnant woman when a pregnant woman receives the vaccine. So that's really helpful information that we want to get out there to share with people to make them feel more comfortable about their choice to be vaccinated in pregnancy. Yeah, that's real world data. My guest today is Dr. Verena Kurich. She is a researcher, clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Calgary. So when you talk about there's no risks from the vaccine, flip this over and tell me the risks to a mother who isn't vaccinated and does contract COVID. Well, you know, yesterday I was in the hospital rounding on patients and I saw three pregnant women in the ICU intubated. And so that's the real world risk. Uh, we have seen such an increase in the emergency room visits of women who are having worsening shortness of breath or cough, unable to keep down food and fluids. Um, and we are seeing those women deteriorate really quickly in pregnancy, particularly in the third trimester when, you know, the uterus is large, it, it, it increase, it raises the diaphragm, which means that it's all, women already feel tired and a little bit of short of breath when they're pregnant and then compound that with something like COVID infection. So, My concern is that the Delta variant is highly contagious, that our pregnant individuals fall within the age category that have the lowest vaccination rates and therefore are at risk of having COVID and then landing in hospital or in the ICU with really severe disease. And of the women that we've seen in the ICU, as you mentioned in the beginning, we've had six women in the ICU in August alone. And then to add to that, if you include the first two weeks of September, there have actually been nine ICU admissions. All of those women are not vaccinated And of the seven of the nine have been delivered, they've all been delivered by emergency cesarean section with a preterm delivery as early as 29 weeks. And we also had reports that of the six in August, 
one of them did mm-hmm. pass away. So that that is the, the the real sad statistic. Can we go back to the vaccine and the protection it provides for the pregnant woman? What about for the the unborn fetus? Uh, protection, or can you just give me an idea what uh, pregnant women uh, can expect for their unborn child? Absolutely. So. You're, you're exactly right that by a pregnant individual being vaccinated, it's, it's sort of a two for one uh, in a sense that not only is the mother protecting herself um, against a COVID infection, but the vaccine, which is an intramuscular injection, so it does not go into the bloodstream, it's picked up by the lymphatic system, and then the antibodies are developed. And it's the antibodies that cross the placenta and provide that immunity to the fetus. So I know that there's a lot of concern out there that it could, that the actual virus crosses the placenta or that it affects our DNA. And, And those really are not concerns we have because they're not biologically possible. But the mum is providing protection for the fetus. And then also with breastfeeding, we know that those same antibodies that the mum is developing after being vaccinated can cross through the breast milk and provide even more immunity if a mother chooses to breastfeed after delivery. And then I would say the third piece of that protection is that if all of the household members, including the mother, are vaccinated, then they are much less likely to bring home um, an infection to this newborn who who will not be able to be vaccinated for many months because we we just simply can't vaccinate newborns. Um, So I think there's many different layers of protection that you can provide by being vaccinated in pregnancy. Um, And all of those factors are, are now backed up again by data and studies that have shown us the antibodies are developed, they do cross the placenta and they are found in the breast milk. Um, And I want to also add one really important piece is that uh, I've been asked a lot of questions lately about a woman who's had an infection, who's had a confirmed COVID infection, and should she still get the vaccine? And the answer is yes. Um, We know that from those same studies looking at antibodies, that the antibodies you develop from a vaccine are actually better in quality. They're more sticky, more likely to provide immunity. And so we encourage women, even if they've had an infection, to still also get the vaccine, both for themselves and for the protection for their baby. Great messages. Dr. Kerr, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Dr. Verena Currett, she is a researcher, clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Cummings School of Medicine, University of Calgary. And that's often a question also for people who had COVID. They're not pregnant, they had COVID, and they want to know if they should get the vaccine. And yes, time and time again, researchers have told us that the antibodies you receive through that vaccine will be far better than the one that you acquired. And also, it doesn't last as long after you've had COVID. So yes, get a vaccine. Alberta's top doctor has admitted she made a mistake back in the summer when she recommended treating COVID as an endemic. The province currently leading the country in COVID cases, hospitalizations. Indeed, it was a serious and deadly miscalculation. We all want to move on from this pandemic, but no one gets to wave a magic wand. Will we ever be in an endemic state? What will life look like then? 
Great column in the Globe and Mail by Andre Picard. Andre joining us today. He is a health columnist at the Globe and Mail, also the author of the best-selling book, Neglected No More. Andre, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi. I always want to give a plug to your book, Neglected No More, because just give my listeners a, a quick synopsis of what the book is about, very timely with COVID. Yeah, the book is essentially, it's not about COVID, but uses the, the disaster, the carnage that happened in long-term care homes is just a, a launching point to talk about how we don't really uh, treat our seniors well, uh, how our public policies are really quite ageist. You know, we take people when they get a little sick and send them off to these homes where they don't want to live, where infection control is terrible. So it's just about you know, rethinking how we deal with aging in society, in an aging society, and uh, how how we want to be treated and I think you know ultimately everybody as we age we want to be treated with dignity and respect and we want to be autonomous and that's what our public policy should be doing and they do the exact opposite so there's a, a lot to, to think about there a lot to digest and I think we're we have to recognize too we're all going there we're all going to become caregivers we're all going to become care receivers so we have a lot of uh, self-interest in making the system better. Yeah, well, the book is Neglected No More. But I'm talking to you today about uh, the great column I mentioned in the Globe and Mail, this whole idea of when will we move on from a pandemic to an endemic? First of all, let's just make sure people are clear on the different definitions. How do you define one over the other? Yeah, so a pandemic is when an, a disease, a a virus in this case is spreading in many parts of the world simultaneously in fairly large numbers. We're in a pandemic. We have been for well, 20 months now. So we're, we're caught in that. Now, an endemic is when we just kind of get used to this. The virus, uh, we're pretty sure, is going to stick around forever now. We thought at one point we'd get rid of it. But it's going to be around, but it's going to be manageable at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later. So endemic, a good example is the flu. Uh, the flu comes back every year, uh, comes back seasonally. It's predictable. We have viruses. We have uh, vaccines to prevent it. And that's what we want. We want some normality. And uh, we're going to get there with COVID, but it's just not clear when. Some countries are, are close, but Canada is certainly not there yet. Yeah. So this summer when you heard Dr. Dina Hinshaw in Alberta say they're starting to move away from the pandemic, treating it as an endemic, what were your thoughts? Well, I was worried right away because I think when people hear that, they don't know that the technical terms. And I think what the public heard, and, and Dr. Hinshaw said this recently herself, the public heard the pandemic is over. And that wasn't her intention, but that's what was understood. And what happened is people just went back to as if nothing was needed. We didn't have to mask anymore. A vaccination wasn't important. Uh, we could have big, you know, we could all go to the Calgary Stampede. So people just took it as a uh, Let's get back to how we were before. And the result, we're seeing it now. We're seeing this huge explosion of cases in, in Alberta. And even worse, we're seeing overflowing uh, intensive care wards. And it's not over. They're going to be dealing with this for, for weeks to come, at least. At the time, Dr. Hinshaw was looking at the numbers in front of her. And a lot of the other provinces were, were saying, oh, OK, let's see what happens in Alberta. So her argument was at the time and the modeling, it made sense. But as you say, that was a point in time and things changed when the message was mixed. Yeah, and I think that the flaw in the, the way they looked at the modeling 
is they didn't take into account. There, there just weren't enough people vaccinated yet. Vaccination is really our way out of this. It's a way of getting a lot of people immune. It's a way of making the, the COVID endemic, but we're just not there. So I think I, Alberta's decision was just premature. Uh, the numbers did look good, but we know there is some seasonal effect here. We knew the numbers were going to jump up in the fall. So it was, uh, in retrospect, uh, definitely a, a bad decision, and, and the government has said that. Andre Picard is my guest today, health columnist at The Globe and Mail. We are talking about pandemic versus endemic. So the question, of course, everyone wants to know then is when will we move into an endemic? What are we looking for? Well, we're looking for really high vaccination numbers, you know, 80 percent at least, maybe 90 percent. We're looking for not big uh, spread, not widespread infections in the community, what we're going to see going forward is little outbreaks. So a specific community with 100 cases, that we can handle. So that's an endemic. That's how the flu works. You know, an outbreak in one school, not in 100 schools. So putting a date on it is difficult because this is a a moving target. The virus is uh, getting more complicated. We know that the the Delta variant is what's really fueling this wave. Uh, So we have to hope that we, we get that one under control and that there's there's not another variant that's worse. But I, I think, you know, maybe hopefully by the new year, by January, we should be able to have a lot higher vaccination numbers. Uh, kids being vaccinated is really the missing piece of the puzzle now. And then uh, that, then we can seriously start looking at, at endemic illness. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned kids because we do hear this 80 to 90 percent vaccination rate. But some people are saying, wait, is that for 12 plus? Because it's a whole different number and a whole different picture if we are looking at total population. So that is another key that we will have to eventually see a vaccine for kids just to be able to reach that high vaccination rate. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to have to be part of our childhood vaccine schedule. We're going to have to do a massive catch up. Uh, And we're starting to get some timelines uh, that pharma companies are talking about asking for uh, approval of pediatric versions of the vaccine, which would be essentially the same vaccine, but different dosage. Uh, That's probably going to come in October for the uh, 5 to 11s. And then maybe by the end of the year, under five-year-olds will will be eligible. So that's going to be a big move. It's going to be really important because of the, you know, about 20% of the population is not vaccinated now. And a good chunk of those, at least half of those are just uh, kids who are not eligible. Okay, let's do some dreaming. So we are in an endemic state. You you mentioned the comparison of it will eventually be like the flu. Will it or we will we see, because even during the flu before COVID, I, I did not see people wearing masks. So is that something that will continue on in our endemic state or will people finally be able to say, oh, I don't have to worry about masks? I think we're going to use masks uh, much more wisely. Uh, You know, you talk about the flu. The flu has a lot of deaths every year, and I think COVID is going to force us to rethink that. What level of deaths is acceptable for an endemic illness? Uh, You know, the flu disappeared during COVID. And why? Because the same measures we use are effective for the flu, and it's less infectious. So to me, going forward... Uh, you know, we should be wearing masks in long-term care homes and hospitals. It should just be the norm. Uh, and maybe in some uh, during flu season, or maybe it's going to be called COVID season come next year, uh, maybe kids should be going to school in masks for September, October, November, which are the big transmission months. I, I think that's the kind of adaptation we're going to have to do. Uh, I don't think we should just stop things uh, that have benefited us in, in ways that we hadn't predicted, like getting rid of the flu. 
Sidebar, though, is, as you say, flu was pretty much gone. Do you think this fall we'll, we'll still have to have a flu vaccine? What's happening around the world that you're watching? Well, I think there's a lot of talk about this. And the real fear is, as com- as countries open up, is that uh, people are really worried what they're calling a twindemic. So we're worrying we'll see a resurgence of COVID because it's the fall and we'll see the return of the flu. And that could be doubly, doubly deadly. I'm trying to make the distinction, uh, people being reluctant to get their flu shots. You know, we didn't have great numbers on flu shots to begin with. So there's a lot of a lot of factors here. The, the flu is not gone. It's going to be back at some point. Uh, the flu is actually the most likely thing we're going to see for another pandemic. We had a, a pandemic flu in 2009 with H1N1, and we know we'll have others. So there's a uh, the arrival of COVID just makes the flu more complicated to manage, actually. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's still go back to that world of an endemic. And we have seen, like a lot of things, as bad as COVID has been, a lot of people are saying, oh, I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to be more aware of the masking and washing my hands. What about even our workplace? Because we have seen workplaces change considerably. How do you see that in an endemic? I think uh, you know, definitely workplaces have changed fundamentally. We're going to see a lot more people working at home. Uh, not anything to do with infectious disease, but just because it worked out well. And who wants to commute for two hours, etc.? So there's a lot of uh, good social economic reasons to, to to rejig the workplace. And then there's the infectious disease part. I think you know in the future. Uh, it's going to be a different world. The, the guy in the corner coughing his head off, that's not going to be acceptable anymore, even if COVID is gone. I think we've learned a lesson there that that's not right and it's not that's not sensible. So I think we're going to have much more strict criteria about, uh, you know, our culture is to go into work sick, right? We're macho. We always do our jobs. And I think that's going to change. And it's going to have to be that in turn is going to have to change things like our paid sick day policies are going to have to be different. And we're already seeing that. We're seeing uh, union contracts being negotiated now where there's way more paid sick days because people realize going forward uh, things have to be different. Andre, you were talking about the importance of children being vaccinated, and hopefully that's going to be happening sooner than later. In an endemic state, will we see a different setup for classes, for schools? Do you think there could be masking even in those situations? Well, I think that COVID has taught a lot, taught us a lot about schools. It's been one of the issues that's been hardest to manage. You know, this a lot of jurisdictions made keeping kids in school a priority, which I actually think was a good idea. But we realize that our way we've built schools is lends itself to the spread of infectious disease. So I think there's going to be a lot more attention paid to things like ventilation. Uh, I really think the main lesson of COVID for schools is class sizes are way too big. I think that has to be a priority, bringing, you know, cutting them in half. Uh, And that's good for education as well. It's not just good for infection control. So, yeah, I hope uh, there are some fundamental changes on masks. Uh, As I said earlier, I think it's going to be masking is going to be something that you do sporadically. I think it's kids are going to have the mask in their desk and sometimes they're going to have to wear them uh, if there's an, an outbreak nearby or in the school. And then the next week when it's done, no more masks. I, I think that's it's going to be part of our, our toolkit of things that we do occasionally uh, to, to deal with things like the flu and with the, what will soon be seasonal COVID, I hope. I had mentioned that um, Alberta's top doctor admitting a mistake when uh, this summer thought that they could move into that endemic state, rather, and other provinces 
and territories we're watching. When we talk about what's happening in other countries, and Canada's keeping an eye on them, has any country done this right that uh, we should be taking a page to say, yeah, look at that, that's what we have to do here? Yes, a lot of countries have done things differently that have done them well. Uh, countries like Australia and New Zealand have been very, very strict since day one. You know, they have the lockdowns when there's just a handful of cases, so they never let their numbers get out of control. Uh, they actually get worked up when there's a few dozen cases. We kind of laugh at that, but uh, I, I think they've managed to to avoid a lot of the, the harm, a lot of the deaths, et cetera. The death rates there are, are very low. Uh, another example, we have Denmark. Denmark's one of the first countries... Uh, that has said openly, we think it's an endemic illness, and that's how we're going to treat it. And they have very high vaccination rates. Pretty well everyone who's eligible has been vaccinated. Uh, they've had a very strict lockdown for you know, 548 days. And they've said, if things, you know, we're going to give you some freedom, but if things start picking up the numbers, we're going to shut down tight again. So I think that that's what we, in Canada, that's what we don't do too well. We op- reopen too quickly and we don't shut down quickly enough. And that's really been the lesson in this pandemic since day one is uh, shut down fast, open up uh, very slowly. That's how you deal with this virus. Underlying all that, though, is vaccination rates, because you, you said it right there with Denmark. They were able to do that, but they had such a high vaccination rate, correct? Yep, that's really the, that's the, it's not the only tool, but it's really become our, our key tool for, for getting the, the virus, uh, getting the pandemic under control is having people immune. And the way, the best way to get them immune is with a, with a vaccine. The other way is to be sick, but that's not a very efficient way uh, because there's a lot of collateral damage. There's uh, death, there's long COVID, there's really expensive hospital stays. So you can get immune that way, but only if you get better. Andre Picard, health columnist at The Globe and Mail. You can read it on The Globe and Mail's website. Also follow him on Twitter, Picard on Health. Andre, thanks for your time today. Thank you. A pleasure. And as we talk about hospitalization rates, Alberta, of course, dealing with its own crisis. But this weekend, union leaders representing thousands of medical workers in Alberta asking Premier Jason Kenney to deploy the military and the Red Cross to shore up a healthcare system that they say is collapsing right in front of our eyes due to rapidly rising COVID cases. And uh, the letter issued this weekend said it's time to call in the military to help our overwhelmed hospitals. And we have heard from all the political leaders, whoever does win on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, they have all said that, yes, they will do whatever Alberta needs when it comes to help. And speaking of the political leaders, why don't we just round up what we've been hearing from them today? Uh, Let's start with a federal conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, he was giving his supporters one last push to get the vote out ahead of tomorrow's polls that show the Liberals and the Tories neck and neck. O'Toole is delivering some familiar pitches he's been refining over the past 30 days in hopes to persuade voters to, in the seat-heavy Ontario province, to vote Conservative. And here's what he had to say. The price of everything in the last few years under Justin Trudeau has been going up. Gas for your car, going up. Groceries for your family, going up. Back to school clothes for the kids, going. And Liberal leader Justin Trudeau kicking off today with an impassioned appeal to voters in Montreal. Because, my friends, Canada is at a crossroads. We now get to pick 
the right direction for our country to keep moving forward or to let conservatives take us back. And I know from everything we've been through together over the past 18 months as a country, that there really is just one direction for us. And of course, both Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau keeping an eye on Jagmeet Singh with the NDP. He was asked today by a reporter, by a reporter rather, that if he would step down as a party leader, if his party actually loses seats or simply doesn't gain any new ones. And this is what he had to say. Uh, we're, we're in a great position. There's, there's lots of folks coming up to us every day. And so I'm confident that people know that they've got a choice and that they have started making that choice already. Lots of young people have already come out to vote. And I'm so honored by that. I want people to come out and vote. Lots of first-time voters have come out to vote. So we're confident people are, are coming towards New Democrats because we're fighting for you. We're fighting the climate crisis. We're fighting to make sure Indigenous people have justice. And we're fighting to make sure homes are affordable. And so we're very confident that people are coming towards us and are supporting uh, our movement because we are here for you. And we're honored by that. And you'll notice he didn't answer the question about whether or not he'd step down. In fairness, any political leader who has asked that question is not going to address it because every leader is expecting to win. And that kind of a conversation in any political party happens after the results are counted. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.